what, what a blessing to be together as the people of God. What a privilege to, to witness Aaron's baptism. That was special. And, and what a, a joy to be able to hang around after the service and, and have fellowship together and give towards buying gifts for orphans in another part of the world. The Bible says, do not forsake meeting together because God is at work among us and through us. I believe that. What a privilege to be together as the people of God. And now we have the privilege of opening up his word together. Now my name is Adam. If we haven't met yet, I'm part of the team here and it's, it's great to have you with us. And I want to begin this morning by telling you about a time in my life when I felt genuinely unsafe. Now there have been few times in my life where I have felt um, really kind of unsafe, which I think is an indicator of the blessings that I've enjoyed. A safe country to grow up, grow up in, a loving family to belong to, a good school to go to and, and so on. But there have been a few times in my life where I've felt unsafe. Now, a few years ago in 2015, I, I travelled to the United States. I was there to attend the Global Leadership Summit in Chicago, but before I went to Chicago, I flew into Washington, D.C. I just had a few days there and I absolutely loved it. Museums, monuments, history, all my fellow nerds are with me. It was great. American food, I had a great time in D.C. Just to prove that I went, here's a photo of me with a little house that I came across. I think at the time it belonged to Mr. Obama, but it's changed hands since then, so just to prove that I was there. But my first experience in D.C. was not that great. I landed at Ronald Reagan Airport around 8pm, which means as I landed, the sun was just beginning to set. Now, I had a little bit of time to kill before I could catch my train where I needed to go, and so I had something to eat while I was waiting. I was starving. I had my first American meal from a place called Ben's Chili Bowl, which apparently is a DC institution, though I'm not so sure what the fuss was all about. That's what I received. Um, I'm not sure what was on my hot dog. I think it's chili, and they gave me potato chips on the side. Apparently, they do that in America. Anyway... By the time I caught my train and got where I needed to go to my stop where my accommodation was, it was now very late and very dark. And as I came up out of the train station, out onto the street, I very much looked like a tourist. I had my backpack on and I had my big suitcase with me. And my next challenge was now to find where my accommodation was. See, I was not staying in a big hotel, I was staying in an Airbnb in the basement of someone's house. And so as I'm standing there trying to get my bearings, I noticed that there were a lot of people just kind of standing around this train station. And then I noticed a particularly large man walking directly towards me. And so I grabbed my bags a little bit tighter, pretended I knew what I was doing. And then he comes up to me and he says to me, and I could tell that he was under the influence of something, and I, I don't think it was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he comes up to me, and he says, you got a cigarette? Now, in that moment, I really wished that I had a cigarette to give him. <laughs> but I didn't. So I said to him that I didn't, and thankfully, he turned around and walked away. 
Now I was dead tired, it's late at night, I had no idea where I was going to find my accommodation because I had no internet in my sense of direction, which isn't good at the best of times. And to cut a longer story short, after I got lost a few times, I eventually, finally, asked someone for directions and found where I was staying. That was one of the few times in my life where I felt genuinely vulnerable for a few moments. Genuinely unsafe. And the reason I bring this up and and tell you this story is because for most of us, we spend our lives trying to find, buy or build security for ourselves and for our loved ones. This is why we put locks on the door, have money in the bank, buy cars with airbags in them. This is why we buy insurance, we eat our vegetables, we go to the gym because we want our lives to be safe, secure and stable. And this is not a bad desire. This is a good and an understandable desire. Of course we want our lives to be safe and secure. But if we're honest, we'd have to admit that a lot of the things we look to for security, they cannot give us ultimate safety and ultimate security. There are things that can and do happen in life that no locks, no vegetables, no insurance, no amount of money can stop from happening. And some of you are in a season of life right now where you know that to be true. Something has happened in your life and it it, it has shaken your sense of security, your sense of safety and well-being. It's rocked you. Maybe you're thinking back to a time in your life when that happened. The truth is there is nothing that we can find, buy or build in this life that gives us ultimate safety and ultimate security. This morning, in the story that we're going to be looking at in 1 Samuel, we are going to discover where true security is found. Now, for the last few weeks, we've been in a sermon series working our way through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. I really hope that you've been reading along in the Bible reading plan that's in your growth group guide. There's just too much content for me to cover in every sermon, and so I would just love you to do your own study and your own reading through the week. Now what we've seen so far is that the people of God were going through a time in their history when God was replacing their corrupt leadership, Eli and his sons, with a young boy named Samuel. Last week in chapters 4-7 to we saw that after a particularly bad period of rebellion and defeat, God used Samuel to call his people back to himself and to intercede on their behalf. And what we read at the end of chapter 7 is that Israel enjoyed a long period of peace and prosperity under the rule of Samuel. But this week, as chapter 8 begins, we jump forward many years and Samuel is now an older man. And with Samuel's impending departure from the scene, the people of Israel begin to get a little bit nervous. They get worried and it forces them to come up with an answer, a solution to their worry and their anxiety that will have devastating consequences. And it's going to reveal for us where we too often look for our security, our safety and significance and where we can truly find it. So we're going to look at this chapter under five headings. There's five movements in the story and each one will teach us a lesson. We're going to see in verses 1 to 3 a familiar problem. In verses 4 to 8, a disastrous solution. 
In verse 9, a surprising response. Verses 10 to 18, a devastating prediction. And then in verses 19 to 22, a deaf people. Familiar problem, disastrous solution, surprising response, devastating prediction and deaf people. So let's begin with the first movement in the story, the problem. And it becomes very clear as we read verses 1 to 3. This is what we're told. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. And we've heard that somewhere before. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. And so Samuel is now an older man. The story is moving quite quickly. But he's not necessarily on his deathbed. He's at the age where you begin to hand off responsibilities. And so the question naturally arises among the people of God, well, who will succeed him? And we're told here that he had placed his sons in positions of leadership. Now, this should sound familiar to us, and it should make us a little bit nervous. Because the last time in the book of 1 Samuel, where where sons were in a position of leadership, it did not go so well. Remember the scoundrels Hophni and Phinehas, the way that they horrifically abused their position and their privilege? Well, sadly, Samuel's sons are no better. They selfishly exploit their privilege for their personal gain. And so the people of God, the nation of Israel, they look at this. They look at Samuel getting older. They look at the wickedness of his sons and they think, we don't want to get stuck with these bums. They're worried about the future. Now, the problem was not so much their worry about the future. They were right to be a little bit concerned about these deadbeat boys over here. Rather, the problem was their response to their worry, their response to their fear. See, rather than trusting that God would lead them into the future, they come up with a solution of their own for the future. They look to something other than God to give them security. Now, before we look at the solution that they propose, let's just admit that we often do the same thing. When we get anxious or fearful or worried about the future, we can begin to doubt the goodness of God forget the promises of God and fail to trust God. And when we fail to trust God, we often look to other solutions, other saviours. And so we might look around at the world at the moment and it's a pretty scary place. There's a lot of things going on that, that can lead us to be fearful. And so maybe in the midst of that, we can begin to look to other things to give us hope for the future. Maybe it's a political party. Maybe we think if just the right politician will get in power, then our hope, our future will be secure. And so our hope can rise and fall depending on the polls, depending on who's in power at the time. Maybe it's money. If we think if I can just get enough money in the bank, I will be able to hedge myself, protect myself from whatever comes in life. And so your hope rises and falls depending upon your bank account. Maybe it's many other things, your body, your relationships, whatever it is. 
When we fail to trust that God holds the future in his hands, the temptation is to take the future into our own hands and to look to other solutions and other saviours. And what this story is going to show us is that the result when we do this is always disastrous. See, Israel, they fail to trust God for the future and so they come up with a disastrous solution. We see what that is in verses 4 to 5. This is what we read. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. Thank you for pointing that out. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now you might be thinking, well, what's so disastrous about this request? Well, the problem was not the request for a king. God had actually promised that he would give his people a king many years earlier. Moses, in the law, had predicted a king. The book of Judges, which we studied last year, revealed the need for a king. The problem was that the king, promised by God, predicted by Moses, was a very different kind of king to the one that the Israelites are asking for. The king promised by God, predicted by Moses, was one who would rule under God and for God because God was ultimately their king. But the king that the Israelites are asking for, did you catch that phrase? They want a king such as all the other nations have. In other words, they look over the fence and they see what their neighbours have, the strong military kings, and they say, hey, well, well, we want what they have. And God explains why this request is so disastrous in verse 7. And the Lord told him, that's Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. God was supposed to be their king, but they want a different king. They want a different king. Now, this is not an outright rejection of God. They're not necessarily saying, well, we don't want anything to do anything to do with you, God, at all. They're saying, well, God, we like having you around. You're pretty handy in a, in a tight spot. But at the moment, we've got real bills, real enemies, real problems. And frankly, we need something a little bit more than an invisible God that we can't see. We'd feel a lot better if we had a strong king that we could see and follow into battle. They want to have God around, in other words, but they don't want to put their... Trust in him. And God says to fail to trust him in everyday life is to reject him. Now this is really important because it tells us that there is more than one way to reject God. You can reject God by not believing in him, not wanting anything to do with him. It's one way you can do it. Another way that we can reject God is by saying we believe in him, but then not trusting him in the details of our lives. One author, one preacher calls this Christian atheism. When you say you believe in God, but then live as if he doesn't exist. When you say you believe in God, but put your trust in other things. When you say you believe in God, but you need other things in your life to feel safe and secure. And we're going to explore this a little bit more, but let me just ask you, what do you feel like you need in order to be safe? In order to be secure? 
in order to have the good life. For Israel, they felt like they needed a king, a strong military king. And this is why they make this disastrous request, which means they have rejected God. But it actually goes even deeper than that because they're not just rejecting their God, they're also rejecting their identity. In verse 20, we're told that their desire to have a king like all the other nations, it was actually driven by their desire to become like the other nations. Look at what verse 20 says. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now the reason this is so bad is that Israel were called by God to specifically be unlike the other nations. They were a special people with a special relationship to God. When God called them in Exodus 19, he said to them, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now as a kingdom of priests, they were to mediate between God and the world. They were to show the world what God is like in the way that they loved and lived together. But in order for them to do this, they had to be a holy nation. They had to be like God. They had to be set apart. They had to be different. They had to stand out. But now tragically and shockingly, they're saying, we don't want to stand out. We don't want to be different. We want to fit in. We want to be like everybody else. And the New Testament applies this very same language from Exodus 19 to us, to the church. In 1 Peter 2, Peter writes and he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are the church, God's holy nation, which means we are to be different, to be distinct, to be set apart. I guess the question is, are we? Now I know it is so much easier to just keep in step with our culture. No one really wants to be unpopular or laughed at or called a bigot. But the reality is, if you're a Christian, you will be different. You will be out of step with popular opinion. And that's okay. That's okay. In fact, that's what you should expect. Because you follow a different king and you belong to a different kingdom. You will be different. But the truth is, we should be different for the right reasons. We need to make sure that we stand out in the right way. Because I worry that when we hear the the call that we are to be different, we hear it as a call to look down our noses at those who are different to us. Or as a call to get outraged at those we don't agree with in the world. But when Jesus described what would be the distinguishing characteristic of his people, he said, by this, by this, everybody will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. 
When Jesus described life in his kingdom, he used words like poor in spirit, meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. When the Apostle Peter described the way that we were to interact and relate to those outside the faith, he said we're to do it with gentleness and respect. So let me ask you, lowly, humble, meek, merciful, peacemaking, gentle, do those things characterise your attitudes towards others? As the church of Jesus Christ, we are called to be different. We will be different. But at BPCC, we will be different for the right reasons. We will stand out in the right way. Because God is using us, our love for one another and our life together to display his love to the world. And this is far too important for us to neglect, to to get wrong or to reject. And this is exactly what Israel are doing. They are rejecting not only their identity, but their God. It's a disastrous solution. But what we see next is that God responds in a very surprising way. Verse 9. God says to Samuel, Now listen to them. Now this literally means obey them. Give them what they want. Give them a king like all the other nations. And this is what we're going to see in the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. But maybe you're wondering, wait a minute. If this request is so bad, so disastrous, why does God give it to them? Why does God grant this request? The short answer is, God will sometimes give us what we ask for to show us that it's not what we really need. Let me say that again. God will sometimes give us what we ask for to show us that it's not what we really need. Have you ever had that happen? You wanted something so badly, you obsessed over it, you prayed over it, you worked for it, and then God gave it to you, and it wasn't what you thought it would be? In fact, maybe it even became more of a curse in your life than a blessing. Think about people who win the lottery. Almost everybody thinks that if I just won the lottery, my life would be so much better, so much easier. And yet history proves that this is not true. It actually turns out to to destroy more lives than to bless more lives. It's not just money, maybe it's a job or a promotion. You think, if I can just get that job, if I can just get that promotion, then I'll be okay. And then you get it, and it turns out to be not good. Maybe you're always overworking, you're stressed all the time, it it hurts your relationships. I mean, on and on we could go. Sometimes God gives us what we ask for to show us that it's not what we really need. In fact, one of the scariest statements in the Bible is in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. One of the worst things God can do for us is to always give us what we think we want. And one of the most gracious things God can do for us is to sometimes say no. And if you're upset with God right now for not answering your prayers, consider the reality, the fact that he might be protecting you. Now you might say, well, it doesn't feel like he's protecting me. 
what would be the harm in him giving me a promotion or, or, or a, a child or, or get marriage? What would be the harm in that? Now, I don't pretend to know why God does what he does, but sometimes we have to acknowledge that God's greatest mercy to us is withholding something from us that we would just use to replace him in our lives. I want to be clear, I'm not saying we, we don't ask for these things or we shouldn't ask for these things. We can and should pray, God, I'd like to be married. God, I'd like to have a child. God, I'd like this raise or this job. I mean, these are good gifts from God. But the problem comes when we crave these things. When we think that we can't be happy, we can't be secure, we can't be safe without them. Because God sometimes gives us what we need. Or God, what we often want is not what we ultimately need. And this is what we see happening for Israel. This king that they think they need is going to end up being a disaster. Because God actually makes a devastating prediction about this king king in the following verses. Look at what we read in verses 11 through to 18. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, did you catch the repeated word in there? Six times the word take appears. He will take your sons and daughters. He will take your crops. He will take your vineyards. And God is saying, it will be so bad that it will feel like slavery. You think this king is going to set you free, but he is going to enslave you. And this is the human story. We too have chosen slavery to created things rather than true freedom under our true king. We have believed Satan's lie that a life without God is a life of true freedom. We have rejected the creator God and run to created things which have promised us freedom but only enslave us. And this is a principle you see throughout the Bible. Whatever we depend on for happiness and security and safety actually ends up enslaving us. I mean, think about it. If you believe that you have to be married to be happy, then you become a slave to marriage. If you're not married, you feel like you're not living a full, true life. If you are married, you put so much weight on your marriage that you can begin to suffocate it. If you have to be successful to be happy, you become a slave to success. You overwork to keep climbing higher. You get jealous of other people who are more successful than you. You get resentful about opportunities that you are overlooked for. You're devastated when people don't give you credit. If you need money to be happy, you become a slave to money. You become jealous of others with more money. You look down on those with less money. You can't be generous with your money because you need to hold on to it. Whatever we look to and depend upon for happiness, safety and security, it actually ends up enslaving us. Now it's not that these things are bad things. 
They're good things. They're gifts from God, but they're not God. And if we treat them like God, they begin to dominate us. And Israel asks for a king that they think they need and it will become a disaster. God warns that he will only enslave them. But this devastating prediction falls on deaf ears. This is the final thing we see in this story. We see the response of the people. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Their hearts have become hard and their request for a king has turned into a demand for a king. We want a king. And God's intention to give them a king has not changed. He says they can have what they're asking for. Israel are deaf to God. They're determined to have the king they think they need. They don't listen to God. What about you? Has God been revealing an area of your life this morning where you're not trusting him? Has God been showing you where you look to for security outside of him? Don't harden your heart and close your ears like the Israelites did. Because this story forces us to ask and answer this question. Where is true security found in this life? And the answer of this story, the answer of the entire Bible, is that true security True freedom is found in the God who made us and the God who has redeemed us. The God who came from heaven to earth to bring us into his glorious kingdom and to bring us under the good rule of his true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus was on earth, not long before he went to the cross, he was asked, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, I am not a king like all the other nations. I am a king like no other. You see, every other king in this world is a taker. Every other king in this world leaves us enslaved and worse off. But Jesus Christ is a giver. When Jesus Christ was on earth, he said to us, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. He said, do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is not a taker. He is a giver. And he freely gives to us this morning. And we simply open up the empty hands of faith and receive. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, 
all fear is gone and life is worth the living just because he lives. Believe that church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we open up and receive what you freely give to us in Jesus. We don't deserve it, we haven't earned it, but you freely give it. Lord, help us as we go from here to live in light of that, to trust you in all things, to look to the future and have our hope firmly set upon the cross and the empty tomb that because of what the Lord Jesus has done, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are empowered by your Spirit and you are with us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand together and respond to those truths. Thou who 